Yes, sir. Um, I'm not a Christian. I am a Muslim. So, pardon my questions. Uh, the Ten Commandments you talked about um, certainly provi provide a very uh, enlightening spiritual uh, guide for people. But as a society, compared to the Mosaic Law, where it has a single law for every single thing you're ever bound to do, uh, I, I see that really the, the laws that Jesus came with, the code of life he came up with. Sorry, code of? The code, the code of life that he's, he's supposed to have given us is not sufficient to envelop society like Jewish law or Islamic law. How do you think Christianity can fix the world if the absolute law that you demand is not present in Christianity itself? You can't love thy neighbor and love thy father and just bring it on from there. And okay, good question. And did you, say, did you say you're not a Christian but you're a Muslim? I'm a Muslim, yeah. Okay, I appreciate that, sir, and thanks for asking. I think it's a wonderful question, and I can see actually why you would even raise it because when you look at the Islamic code, everything is enjoined, everything is described from your diet and your fasting and all of that, it is all enshrined in, uh, and all the way up to the Sharia and the court and the law, etc. Jesus stood in stark distinction to both Islam and in the way the Judaizers were using the law. He never came to destroy the law. He made that very clear. He came to establish it. What he reminded us is that by the keeping of the law, no flesh can be justified. This is a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity. That in my faith, I can be absolutely certain that I am forgiven. Not because I am righteous. For you it would be purely the will of Allah, whether he chooses to grant you that salvation or not. But don't ever forget that what Jesus actually said was transcend the written law in any way. For example, he says, you say, you know, you shall not commit adultery. He said, I'm telling you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. He has already established that now on a higher plane. He says, if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. If anything, he establishes it on a higher plane than either uh, the Quranic law or the, uh, the, the Judaizers would have used. So let me take you to what I think is a classic response to your question. If you take the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus said is the characteristic of the child of the kingdom, you've got there inscripted not only what the moral boundaries are, it's not my law by the way, <laughs> what the moral boundaries are, but how only by the change of heart and beginning with the poverty of spirit can you come into that relationship and live as a child of the kingdom. For example, when he took the whole story of the uh, Good Samaritan, you know, uh, the person questioning Jesus said, who is my neighbor? Did you notice, do you remember how Jesus answered that? He basically answered it not by telling him who his neighbor was, but to whom are you being neighborly? He said it again on a higher plane. So I think the difference between, say, what you are raising for me and what the Christian faith would give to you is that the Christian faith is not devoid of a moral law. It sets it on a higher plane and reminds you and me 
that we cannot keep it in 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 and of ourselves. Jesus described the moral law as a mirror. You can look at a mirror and find out that your face is dirty, but you don't go and rub your face on the mirror to clean it. So you go to something other than the mirror, and the, and the law, says the Apostle Paul, is a schoolmaster. If anybody knew what the moral law was, it was the Apostle Paul. And he found out at the end that it was only the grace of God and the mercy of God that was able to give him salvation. It doesn't deny the law, it affirms it, and shows ultimately the impossibility for you and me to keep it. So it it does not destroy the law. It shows that he alone completely fulfilled it. No one else ever did. So eloquently spoke tonight about the credibility of Jesus Christ. And this question may be a little bit repetitive um, considering some of the topics on Scripture. But my question would be to you is in in presenting these these points about Jesus Christ and his credibility that I see is... If someone says, look at Jesus' life in the context of Scripture and how in there he affirms parts of the Old Testament, uh, all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and specifically referencing uh, the story um, where he mentions Jonah and the, uh, being swallowed by the whale. My question is, is in this, how do you deal with, with Jesus affirming as truth, as historically accurate, these stories of the Old Testament? that have become uh, such casualties, I guess, today in, because of our uh, approach to, to Scripture and saying that this seems to be an incredible, incredible thing, that is, a man was swallowed by a whale, you know, outside of the fact that God created and allowed this situation. It just seems, um, it seems to me to be a very hard thing to swallow. I understand. <laughs> no, no pun intended. You don't mean it's fishy. No, okay. You know, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, To say that any honest thinking Christian doesn't think about that would be dishonest. Uh, And that's only one among many stories. Um, So let me begin with a worldview issue here. You see, there are two issues that are involved here. You're dealing with metaphysical issues. You're dealing with supernatural issues. David Hume attacked both of them. David Hume said, metaphysically, you cannot really make any statement on ultimate reality. He said, if a statement is not mathematical or not experimental, toss it into the flames. It is nothing but sophistry. Well, the problem with that test for authenticity is that that statement itself failed his own test, which means it really is a meaningless statement. Uh, So to say if a statement has to be meaningful, it has to be mathematical or experimental, is uh, is a self-defeating statement. Number two. When we think of the uh, realm of the miraculous, we have to be very careful in trying to understand how God has operated in history and how he operates now in history. For example, uh, if you go to Armenia today, they have celebrated for centuries the coming of Jonah to preach to them. In fact, I was invited. I don't know, the gentleman may be here because uh, he lives in Detroit, I believe. I was invited by the church there uh, in two, uh, 10 years before, 1991. I was invited in 2001. I think it was going to be uh, the 1800th year of the commemoration of the church in Armenia, and they were celebrating the arrival of Jonah to preach. Now, when you go back across history and you see things like that, 
you begin to say there are some historical notations that are remarkable that come back again and again to remind us that these things indeed go back closer and closer to the actual event. The materialist and the naturalist though has to take a step back and be absolutely honest with themselves. This world itself is a miracle. Your human body is a miracle. When you think of uh, my professor of quantum theory at, at uh, Cambridge was John Pokinghorn. And I remember John Pokinghorn giving us a lecture one day and talking about the, con the contraction forces between expansion and contraction. And he looked at the small group of doctoral students. He said, I want you guys to know something. And he's a latecomer to Jesus Christ. He's written the book now, One World. And John Pokinghorn, his book, Quantum is Hailed by Physics Bulletin, one of the best in his genre. And Pokinghorn said, when you look at just that exactitude, so precise, and the margin of error, he said, is so small that it would be the equivalent of taking aim at a one square inch object 20 billion light years away and hitting it bullseye. And then he looked in typical English understatement, looked out of the window and said, gentlemen, there's no free lunch. Somebody has got to pay. So as C.S. Lewis says, a slow miracle is as incredible as a fast miracle is. So what I say to you is, if the problem for the person is in the book of Jonah, it is understandable. But the problem is not then the book of Jonah. The problem is in the possibility of the miracle itself. And if you can see the supernatural all around you, see, just look at one thing, the, myth, the marvel of sexuality. Think about it. The glory of sexuality. Not only its physical expression, its emotional expression, its pleasurable fulfillment, its knitting of the spirits of two people, the bringing birth of a life, the looking at the marvel of a little baby that is formed in the... Somebody here told me he, had a, uh, he and his wife uh, had a child that was only weighing one pound ten ounces and survived. My wife used to be a nurse. She held a baby in her hand that was fit in her whole palm. That's in itself a miracle. The God who created this world and created you and me to keep somebody alive in the inside of a whale for those, that period of time is not exactly impossible for that kind of God. And I say to you, when you look at this ossuary now of Joseph, of James, sorry, the brother of Jesus, and that has been discovered, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, stunned archaeologists. They once upon a time told us there's no evidence for David. Now they've found that evidence. They told us Pilate is not named anywhere. Now they've found markings of Pilate and Saul going into the museum. Now they found James, the brother of Jesus. What would have happened if they'd found the ossuary of Jesus? Quite a startling thing, wouldn't it be? And yet, for 2,000 years, they have tried to find. He talked about the bodily resurrection and he rose again from the dead. If you go to Larnaca today, there's a church in Cyprus where Lazarus became bishop. They excavated his grave in the 900s. And outside the grave it says, Lazarus, bishop of Larnaca, four days dead, friend of Jesus. Jonah is small stuff for one who <laughs> conquered the grave. We have a question that was text in. It says, um, I've never heard God or seen him. Shouldn't that be enough?
proof to disregard him. You have never seen energy either, but you sure are using it right now. <clears throat> the answer was, the question was raised by a man called Nicodemus, who was looking at Jesus and said, questioned him about his authority and his power and so on. And then Jesus looked at him and said what he needed more than anything else was a change of heart. And unless that heart was changed and regenerated by God, he would never understand the terms of the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to know that actually some of the most beautiful aspects of life, you've never seen your consciousness. What is consciousness? What is energy? Some of the most powerful and beautiful aspects of life are expressed. What is love? Love is expressed in terms and love is expressed in action. But it doesn't have to be defined as love, does it? It can just be defined as compassion or benevolence or altruism or whatever it is. But love is a condition that is found in your heart, that takes your heart and turns it over to the one who's made it, that, has shaping, that is shaping you, that is leading you in the direction that he wants you to go. God, let me give you one more simple illustration, be seated on this. I was in a country, I want to be very careful here, but these, these things are streamed live all over the globe. I was in a country I'll leave unnamed, with one of the leaders who was one of the highest in power in an egalitarian society. And I was answering the quest her questions along with the professors for three and a half hours. She was a, a vowed atheist, and so was the professor. And an enormous amount happened in that three and a half hours. And at the end of the three and a half hours, she herself commented that the man who was hosting me there himself had been an avowed atheist for so long. She said, but he met you, and the things happened. His life has changed. We can't believe the change in this man's life. So I've asked to talk to you about these things. And after three and a half hours, she said to me, yes, I'd like you to pray with me. And so I prayed. And when I finished, here's what she said to me. She said, you know what asked me to want to pray with you? I said, why? She said, I've never prayed in my life before. I've never heard anybody else pray in my life before. But when this man, our host, asked you to pray before we ate, you prayed first for the servants in the kitchen and thanked God for them. And she got all choked up. She says, in my country, that would have been the last thing that would have ever come to my mind, to pray for the servants in the kitchen. And she got all choked up and said, thank you for what you've taught me today. You see God in the impact on your life and the beautiful design that he has given in the world for you and for me to enjoy. And when that transformation takes place, the hymn writer says this, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen, 
Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, stars with deeper beauty shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. You read the Gospel of John, invite him to come into your life, you will see the impact of his work within you, greater than energy that turns on when you put a switch on. Thank you. My question is, if humans and light and life were intelligently designed, then why do our bodies not show intelligent design so much as they reveal the evidence of evolutionary ancestry? I'm glad he's here. <laughs> well, this is going to keep us till after midnight, ladies and gentlemen. Bye. So I'm going to try and go to the heart of it. It poses an alternative, intelligent design or evolution. Now, evolution is a mechanism which consists basically of two things, natural selection and mutation. If you look around this room, you'll see we don't all look the same. Why is that? Well, there's been a good bit of selecting going on. And uh, there are also mutations from which we all suffer were different. So that mechanism does something. That's not controversial. Some of what Darwin observed was brilliantly observed. But now the confusions begin. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, said that evolution is the explanation for the existence and variation of all of life. That is false. Because the existence of life is not explained by biological evolution. Now, for the purposes of what I'm going to say, I'm not going to attempt to address the question whether biological evolution has limits. And now is a bit of shameless advertising. That's why I wrote this book. <laughs> to investigate that from my perspective as a mathematician. Let's assume that evolution does lots of things. But what it doesn't do is explain the existence of the mutating replicator on which it depends. And that mutating replicator is a micro-miniaturized factory of unbelievable sophistication. The language of life, the genetic code, is extremely ancient, according to what we're told. It's scarcely changed at all. And that raises immense questions as to how it could possibly have developed in the very short time available from the cooling of the earth till it was cool enough to support carbon-based life which goes back to a very short time after the earth was cool enough. Now this interests me as a mathematician because the cell is an information processor. What we've got in the biological macromolecules is something that physics and chemistry do not know in the sense that you've got a signaling system, you've got a code, you've got a translator of the code. Now in every other area where we see anything like that, the inference upward to intelligence is instant and immediate. It seems to me, without going further into it, that if you look at a cell as an information processing machine, it then can be simulated by a Turing machine, 
which is a kind of abstract computer. And all of you computer geeks will know, junk in, junk out. And that, I think, is borne out in the sophistication of what the cell is and what it does. Now, chemistry and physics do not have the capacity to produce these things. They can't produce them by evolution because evolution can't get going until you have a mutating replicator. So somehow it has to happen. And people have been working on it now since 1953 when Miller and Urey won the Nobel Prize because they thought they discovered the secret of life. Nobody knows. That is the confession of how life started. All I would suggest to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is this. That if you look at it, whatever mechanisms are involved, the very nature of the entity that we have now come to understand is part of the carrier of life. The thing that it seems to me to instantly shout at you is that whatever else is involved, there is a designing intelligence behind it. You see, what we've got is a choice. It's between in the beginning were the particles and energy, and somehow they came together to produce elements, which somehow came together to produce macromolecules, which somehow came together to produce life, which somehow came together to produce consciousness, which somehow came together to produce morality, which sometimes came together to produce the idea of God, because God doesn't exist. Or, you have in the beginning was the word, and all things were made by him. That is, mass energy are not primary. They're derivative. And that makes sense. Isn't it fascinating that the longest word we know has been given to us in some of our lifetimes, and it's the genetic word that determines the human genome. We recognize instantly that short words are the product of intelligence. What keeps us back from recognizing that the long words are not products of intelligence? Could it be a prejudice that the solution has got to be an unguided naturalistic process? Why is there such pressure in that direction? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if life did not start by an unguided natural process, that is the end of materialism as a philosophy. And that's a very high price for some people to pay. Thank you. You spoke of the exclusivity of Christianity and um, the notion that we can only truly come to know God through knowing Jesus. Um, I'm sure in your travels you've been to many places where a lot of the people haven't even heard of Jesus Christ, much less seen a Bible. I'm just wondering whether God gives all the people of the earth the possibility to know uh, God through Jesus, and if so, how does he do it? Yes, sir, I marvelous question, and if you don't mind me asking you, I just love that accent. Is that New Zealand, or where are you from, South Africa? I'm from Australia. Where? Australia. Australia. Wow. We shall root for your cricket team when they're not playing India. Okay. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for asking that question, and I want to read something for you here. Please give me your name. My name is Kim. 
Here's what I want to read for you from Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set forth for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Your question is a very deep question, which has been asked for many, many uh, decades. Uh, we ask it, I ask it as a proclaimer. Sometimes I go into a city or a place where people have not heard anything like what you're presenting. We hear them say that and so on. God reminds us in his word and in many illustrations of history, that he is able to bypass even the human mechanism in order to speak to men and women. And he does this not only through public proclaimers. Now with the television and media and the written page and all of that, uh, people can read about him in, in various places, never having heard a preacher or never having come into contact with the church or whatever. And one of the most remarkable things, and I want to tell you this, uh, one of the most remarkable things I've heard as I travel is the parts of the world in which God has spoken many times through dreams and visions. It's happened in India, it's happened in Iran, it's happened in places of the world that I could name for you. And let me give you just one simple illustration to sustain what I'm saying because it only demonstrates for us that he is near people who truly call upon him. I was in, um, in a country, I'll have to leave this unnamed, but my wife and I were invited for dinner by a man who came from a very troubled part of the world, the majority, 99 point something percent of whom are Muslim people. And this fellow asked if he could have dinner with us. He'd read some of my books and a Chinese Christian businessman brought him to meet my wife and me. It's such a fascinating story that it's worthy of repetition here. He only introduced himself with the name that he said, it's not my real name. He said, I belong to the army of my country. I have been trained to kill without feelings. So that was my training. My brother is a general in that army. He said, Mr. Ravi, for seven years in a row every night, I had a dream of Jesus. Seven years in a row every night. He said, I was in this army where I was trained to kill and the other thing I did was learned how to make false passports. That's all I did. Kill people at certain orders, make false passports for people to get into other countries. And as he started talking, I said, by the way, how are you here? He said, I make passports. Don't ask me any more questions. And we started, continued to have dinner. He said, seven years in a row I had the dream and my mother told me, get out of here or your brothers will kill you. He said, I'm not going to become a Christian. She said, that's all right. You're having this dream, they'll see what's going to happen, you get out of here. He said, I left there, and I have arrived here, met this Chinese businessman. He talked to me, we became friends. He said, I have committed my life now to Jesus Christ. He was in a seminary in this country, preparing to go back. He said, he'll have a passport when he needs it, to go back and re-enter his country and begin to preach out there. So my wife looked at him and said, what has been the biggest difference since you came to know Christ? He said, I don't have that dream anymore. <laughs> Seven years in a row he had that. So Jim, the question is a profound one, but I truly and sincerely believe what, G, what, what the Bible says. 
you shall search for me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. It is not the volume of content that you need as much of the intent on your heart that cries out and says, God, I need you, save me. And I believe he reveals Christ to you, principally through his word or through some other person or through a vision or through a dream and brings you to himself. There's a book written called Persian Springs, which counts a dozen different testimonies in the same way that I've given to you. If you go to Taylor University in Indiana today, there's a big hall there called Sammy Morris Hall. It was an African youngster by the name of Sammy Morris, living in a village, who believed there was an answer to Christ through God, to, to God, but he didn't know the name. He got onto a ship, arrived in New York, and went to a, somebody looking, went into a church, they introduced him to Christ, he became a famed preacher, a committed preacher to his own people. Today that hall in Taylor University is named after Sammy. So I just say to you that as rich a question as it is, God has ways of reaching people and I truly believe the judge of all the earth will do right to whom much is given, much shall be required. And I think God will judge you in the light of what he has revealed to you and what you know to be true. If God is all-powerful, uh, all all-knowing, why would he still choose to create a world where it's going to fall apart and uh, we're going to have atrocities like we have now when uh, he knows that that's going to be the outcome of what we choose? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you deal with the whole effect, which is what we are living in, whatever the cause, when we deal with the effect, what we have now, you have three or four possible options. One option is that it would have been better to have no creation at all than to have this one, okay? Number two, would it have been better if he'd only created people who would only choose good, right? That's the second option. Number one, no creation. Number two, where we would only choose good. Number three, where there were no such thing as good. It'd be better if they, he'd created a world where there was no such thing as good or evil, an amoral world. Or, as far as we know, the only other option is, or this world, where there's a possibility of good and evil, knowing that we would still choose evil and all the entailments that you have uh, uh, mentioned here. So no creation, only good, no such thing as good or evil, or this particular world. It is interesting, when we raise the question, we metaphysically introduce a moral framework. Would it have been better? Would it have been better? Would it have been better? If it had been morally better, the only reason to justify the question again is that there is such a thing as good or evil. Otherwise, the question is moot or self-defeating. Now, since we invoke a moral framework, and you cannot invoke a moral framework in an amoral world, then the question is, what is the ultimate ethic? And the ultimate ethic, as I see it, is the ethic of love. And so this world is, may not be the best of all possible worlds, but it may be the best of all possible means to the best of all possible worlds. So I think that created order with the envisionment of love as a supreme ethic is still makes the possibility the supreme ethic which the other three worlds would not have made possible at all. Uh, this question is for Rabbi. Um, you mentioned the story of, of that, uh, I think you said he was Jewish and he was shot by uh, at that I, I think it was a concentration camp or something like that and I'm gonna play the devil's advocate for a bit and pretend I'm Sam Harris no pun intended of course um, you stated that God was watching God watched the gentleman pull the trigger 
if God was watching, why didn't he make that trigger not work? Why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave? Um, okay. I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, the playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. It was interesting of all people, it was Oscar Wilde who on his deathbed in his 40s, by his lover by his side, Robbie Ross, he turned to Robbie and he said, did you love any one of those little boys for their own sake? It was an incredible question to ask by a man who was a hedonist on his deathbed in his 40s. And he said, Robbie, did you ever love any one of those little boys for their own sake? And Robbie Ross said, no, I can't say I did. He said, bring me a minister. Bring me a minister. And it was in his magnificent poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, that Oscar Wilde said, only Christ was big enough to cleanse his heart and forgive him for all that he had done. The point even the hedonist realized was that in pleasure also, value and love are the supreme ethics that can be treasured. But you can never have love without intrin intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic, and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're going to be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive. 
the greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as the supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mideastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. The man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming, looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man, but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes we don't know what lies ahead why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself but the as a pilgrim's progress to come to the so, celestial city. We're living in a world that's in deep trouble. Economically, politically, morally, spiritually. Richard Dawkins says he has four gaps he needs to fill and then he'll fill up his philosophical framework. He says the gap is how life came from non-life, the gap of morality, the gap of consciousness, and the gap of sexuality. Pretty big gaps. God of the gaps has shifted location. He's got to fill it out there. The biggest gap you have to fill in your life is that of meaning and destiny. What does your life mean? What does it really mean? And what hope is there? Jesus said he would bodily rise from the dead. If he were a fake person, he would have said he'd spiritually rise, and that would be the end of it. You'd never be able to falsify his claim. But he said he'd bodily rise so that there'd be a material body of demonstration or a falsifiability if the body was still there. And he never rose. He was not fooling with you. He's not playing games with you. He changed my life on a bed of suicide, changed his life, changed his, and millions of others all over the globe. You come to him and ask him to reveal himself to you. He'll give you that meaning, that hope, and that destiny of what life is really all about. 
I spent a whole afternoon with one of the four founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal. The Middle East is sitting on a keg that one is afraid might explode very quickly. The chief of intelligence of one country in the Middle East told me I give this part of the world no more than five, maximum ten, and it's over. Sheikh Talal and I were in conversation and I said to him, Sheikh, in his home in Ramallah, very close to where you and I are sitting is a mountain. I said, 5,000 years ago, a man by the name of Abraham went up that mountain to express his faith. He was willing to sacrifice his own son and God stopped his hand and said, no. And the Sheikh nodded. I said, you know what God said after that? He said, no. I said, God said, stop. I myself will provide. He said, yes. I said, Sheikh, very close to where you and I are sitting is a hill. It's called Calvary. I said, 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son and offered his son. I said, Sheikh Talal, until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for power, position, land, and prestige. There was dead silence in the room. And I thought, brother, I've had it. As I was walking away from there, the archbishop who was with me, the former archbishop, put his arm around me and said, Ravi, that was of God. I said, I sure hope so. <laughs> As we walked down the stairs and went to our waiting cars, I was about to get in when the sheikh, a strong man, came over to me and pulled me towards him. And he looked me in the eye patted me on both sides of the face and kissed me. And he said, Dr. Zacharias, he said, you're a good man. I hope I see you again. I'm not asking you to take our word for it. I'm just asking you to check the scriptures. He gave his son so that you and I and our sons and daughters might live. The gospel is not nonsense is the most profound expression of what matters to us the most, our relationships. And you will never find that until you found a relationship with God himself, who has made you in his own image to have communion with him and love and respect for your fellow human being.